get this out of here. Brought my own water bottle. Hello, everybody. I'm Russ. Hey, how's it going, Ben? Uh, can you have the water? Of course you can have the water. It's actually super cold. Oh, enjoy. So, I'm Russ. I'm the student ministries pastor here. Pastor Scott will be back next week. He wanted me to remind you guys uh, that you can bring friends to the corn roast and you could also bring friends to the Back to Church Sunday because I want to say he has a special gift to give them because it makes it sound cooler, but it says we have a special gift. I don't know what the gift is. So it's probably him who's giving it. But for any guests that you bring, Pastor Scott has a special gift just for them. So bring them to Back to Church Sunday and the corn roast. Uh, they'll have a good time. You won't regret it. So... Um, I have too many announcements for youth ministry stuff. I don't know what to announce. Uh, but if you're not on the parent email list for either the high school or the middle school parent email list, get on it because we have a lot of stuff starting to uh, turn up. So I'd love to tell you about it, but there's not enough time. I have a message to get to. So get on the parent email list. If you don't know how to do that, you come up to me afterwards. I can tell you how to get on. So. Uh, this last May, I want to say, was the first time my wife and I got to go away since we had our youngest, Kiki. Uh, she's two and a half, somewhere around there. And it was, it was awesome. We were out of state. We were so far away. Even if we wanted to come back and help, we couldn't. It was amazing. We finally got out. And uh, so how it happened was my wife is really, really cool and talented. So she gets to go to Arizona a couple times a year for work. She's like a personal trainer. Uh, but more. And uh, so she gets, she, gets, she gets to go to these like, cool filming summits and stuff. And so we decided that uh, since her trip was paid for, I would just like, tag along. So after her filming stuff was done, I flew out and I met her. And uh, Arizona in the desert was way more deserty than I was ready for. Because uh, it was like May. It snowed the first day of May. Do you guys remember that? It snowed. So I, w I went just after it snowed. And um, it was so hot, so dry. I packed like three shirts a day. I was like, yeah, I'm going to need a lot of shirts because I'm going to get really sweaty. And uh, my wife's super active. So we were like riding bikes, we're hiking and stuff. And I didn't, I used like one shirt. I always felt like I was on the verge of, I was about to sweat, but it never came out. It's like, what is this place? I was so dry. My lips were always so chapped. It was awful. It's like, people live here. It's terrible. And uh, then we went to the Grand Canyon. Uh, I had been there when I was li like much, much younger, but I didn't remember anything about it. So uh, it's super dangerous. There's no railings like anywhere. I don't know if you guys have been to the Grand Canyon, but it seems like it's like a completely different country where they don't have like laws to protect people's lives and stuff. It's like, I, like I've heard that people like fall over the edge taking selfies, and uh, I understand how they could do it because. It's definitely super sketchy. The thing about the desert, like, it seems like everything in the desert is trying to kill you. Like, as we were, like, driving around, I was looking at, like, the unbroken desert. I don't even know what to call it. Where there's not sidewalks and roads and stuff. I'm like, how did the cowboys get around? Because, like, it's so dense. Everything has thorns and prickers. And then there's, like, snakes and scorpions and javelinas. You guys know what a javelina is? No, nobody knows what javelinas are. Okay, they're like the raccoons of the desert, but they're worse. If you combine the, rac the habits of a raccoon, a skunk, 
and uh, something with really sharp tests, like a pig, that's what it is, but it travels around in packs, and they're super territorial and aggressive. And so every time we were walking around on one of our like, hikes or whatever, I was always just like, I was staring at the ground waiting for rattlesnakes, because I figured they're everywhere. And, uh, and I was like really, really scared of just dying without being able to tell my kids that I love them. And uh, I even, it even got to the point where we were avoiding squirrels because when we were at the Grand Canyon, we were at this one, we were at this one corner. I want to say it's the southeast, but who knows, maybe it was the southwest. And um, I was talking about the workers there, and he's like, yeah, we have 30 hospitalizations a week just in this one spot from squirrel attacks. I'm like, we can't trust them. Can't trust the squirrels. So I'm avoiding squirrels. And uh, as we were driving, I'm like, if we break down, we're dead. We're never surviving. It's so hot. And like, there's no AC. And like, I remember I'm going my, through like my middle school in my head. I'm like, all right, I remember that you could get water from some certain cacti. And, um, but with my limited knowledge, I'd probably end up like poisoning us because I ate the wrong one or drank the wrong one. I know one's called prickly pear. It's in like fancy drinks, but I don't know how to harvest it. I'd probably end up killing us by accident. So uh, at one point we were actually, we were driving to the Grand Canyon. It was like hours. We're, we're, we haven't passed anything for a long time. We're driving like through these mountains. The mountains there are like super jagged and not, they don't look like broccoli like they do here. And uh, we didn't pass anything well after this point. But all of a sudden this guy like climbs over the guardrail. And I'm like, where'd this guy come from? And I was like, that's what people must have experienced coming across Jesus in the desert. Because like, he's like 40 days in the desert. They're like, how did this guy get here? It's like this weird moment. I feel like I connected that with that. But uh, it all culminated to this point where my wife convinced me we should stay in a tent in the desert uh, next to the Grand Canyon. And the guy who owned the tent, he was like, just so you know, it's going to get cold. I'm like, yeah, we're from Vermont. It's all right. We sleep with the window open when it's 45. And uh, <laughs> when we went to bed, it was 26 degrees. I was like, what is this place? It's horrible. I was not ready for the 26 degrees, but the worst part of it all, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had to go to the bathroom because I, I drink a lot of water, especially when I don't know what to do and there's really not a lot to do in the desert because I was scared of going outside. And um, so I woke up, my wife's like, Bree, I had to pee. Will you come watch me so I don't get attacked by something? So she, I made her in the middle of the night come follow me outside so I could go to the bathroom. It was uh, horrible. Never going back. So when we landed back in Vermont, it was amazing. Like I got off the plane and you could smell the moisture in the air. It smelled like everything was molding. And, um, and I was like, I love Vermont. All you need is long pants and a tick puller. You can go anywhere. It's the best. Love it here. So today, uh, I wanted to take a look at the book of Numbers. Sounds like a boring book, but it's not. It's really, really cool. It's actually a historical account of God's people traveling through the desert, and God's people are the Israelites. So why would the Israelites be traveling through the desert? Some quick backstory. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And um, uh, God used a man named Moses to tell Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, to let my people go. You guys might have heard of Pharaoh before. And, uh, and he uses plagues. Uh, God inflicts a bunch of plagues. Eventually, Pharaoh lets uh, God's people go. A whole bunch of dramatic stuff happens. You should definitely check out the book of Numbers and read it for yourself because it's pretty intense. Lots of stuff happens. And then uh, Moses leads the Israelites on a two-week journey, but it takes 40 years. So the, the distance across the desert should only take two weeks. 
takes 40 years. All the dads here are like, oh, I know what that's like, right? We try to go on vacation, get stuck in traffic, it's the worst. So Numbers is an awesome book. Um, because it actually is actually the historical record of the people of Israel. But it starts out with like a census, which you're like, yeah, historical record would have that. But it's also mixed with some story, which is really, really nuts. Uh, shortly after the census, we see this guy talk to his donkey. And the donkey responds in, in, uh, in his language, which is very odd. So in a historical piece of text, it's very weird to have that stuff. But it makes it interesting. And the theme throughout the whole book of Numbers is grumbling and rebellion. Everybody takes a turn grumbling and rebelling. Uh, the people, the Israelites as a whole, at least 10 times rebel against God. Uh, the military does. The priests do. Moses' family does, which he's the leader, so it's kind of a big deal for them to rebel against Moses and God. And then finally, Moses rebels. Everybody's grumbling. Everybody's rebelling. And in the whole book of Numbers, we see God speaking to Moses 80 times. You're like, wow, God spoke to Moses a ton, right? He's one of the most important people in Christian history. Everybody knows who Moses is. Even people outside the church who have never been to church before have heard the story of Moses. And uh, he's so important, but some quick math, 80 divided by 40 is like two. God spoke to Moses like maybe two times a year. And when I hear that, I'm like, hey, that's actually pretty encouraging because I haven't heard from God recently. Like maybe, maybe like you feel far from God because you haven't heard from him recently. And you're like, oh, you know, that's kind of encouraging that Moses, who everybody knows, only heard from God maybe twice a year. Um, or uh, maybe you're encouraged because you did hear from God recently. Hey, you might have heard from God more in this year than Moses did on any given year. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy when you just do some, that's math I could do, some simple math right there. This is also a different time because this is before Jesus. God only spoke to his cho like one chosen person and they would deliver what God had to say to the people of Israel. So uh, God only spoke to specific people. Now though, because of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit with us and we can speak to God and hear from God whenever, wherever. There's no ceremony, no special place we have to go to. We can hear from God and speak to God wherever. So it's a completely different time. Sometimes it's really good to remember that when reading stuff like this because in our context, uh, sometimes we're looking um, with our context into their context. But their context, only uh, one person hears from God. So I want to take a look at um, a, a chapter in Numbers just to give you a glimpse of what Numbers looks like as a whole. Numbers 11. I don't have the text on the screen. I'm just going to summarize it really quick so you can get and pick out a couple key verses just so you can see what the book of Numbers looks like and specifically how God's people react to hardship. So we have the Israelites wandering the desert. They're out of food because this two-week journey that they packed for is taking a lot longer than two weeks. And so um, they're without food. God has provided this miraculous miracle food from heaven called manna. Calm down, you nerds. It only has, one, it has two ends. All right, it's not the manna with one end that you're thinking of for my fellow nerds. Um, so it's enough food. It falls with the dew every morning, and they go and collect it off the ground. There's at least 600,000 people. There's a lot of free food falling from heaven. And uh, everyone has their fill, but now they're tired of it. They're openly wailing. Everybody's crying, ah, I'm tired of this food. In verse 5 and 6, it says, 
The Israelites are crying. They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And they're like, we ate this food for free. And it's like, yes, because you were slaves. The food was free, but you weren't free. That's how they react. And then Moses hears this. And this is, this is part of why the book of Numbers is awesome. I was reading this and I laughed out loud because Moses, Moses goes to God and he says this in verse 11. What have I done to displease you that you would burden, when you would put this burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive them? Like, ha ha, Moses, that's funny. He's like, did I birth these kids? Why did you do this to me? And then, um, and then he says to God, if this is how you're going to treat me, just kill me. And then God responds to the people begging for meat. And he says, I'll give them so much meat, it's going to come out their nose. He actually says that. Go check it out. It's in chapter 11. <laughs> God's funny too. So he provides quail. So he like makes the storm happen. All these quail fly in. Every man, woman, child goes and collects 60 bushels of quail in that one go. And you're like, oh, how much is 60 bushels? I looked it up. 1,900 quail each. That's over a billion quail. I had to use a calculator for this, and I didn't write it down. So these numbers are going to be probably wrong. But I looked it up. If every man, woman, child ate 50 quail every day, how long would it take for the 600,000 of them to eat all the quail? It's almost 100 days. It's like 95 days. It's crazy. It's a lot of quail. Quails aren't very big. And then as a bonus, God uh, struck them with a plague. So what do we see? We see the Israelites grumbling because the uh, desert's a terrible place. I can relate. Moses is mad. He gets mad all the time. God provides, and then God inflicts a plague. And then we have me reading this that happens when I read the book of Numbers. I look at what God does, and I say, God, how is this fair? Why inflict the plague? And the people say uh, throughout this, they're saying, God, listen up, God. Just do this the way I would do it. Give us the meat the way we want the meat. And we'll be happy. And you'll be happy too. And I'm saying the same thing. I'm like, God, I don't understand like, what I would do. Give them some meat. And then, you know, don't inflict them with the plague. And everybody's happy. I'm happy reading this. You're happy because your people have food. The people are happy because they don't have a plague. That's the book of Numbers. So we're going to take a deeper dive in, uh, today into chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Uh, just for some context of when we're reading this, this is 37 years in. Okay, so if you see people reacting certain ways and stuff, they're 37 years into this two-week journey. All right, so I'm going to read it in a second. If you want to turn to Numbers 20, 1 through 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we died with our when our brothers fell, dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? 
It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their, ver- before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. That's the promised land he's talking about. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. Thirty-seven years. All right, first, we see right at the beginning that someone named Miriam dies. And for me, when I'm reading something like this, I just blow right over it most of the time. But uh, Miriam's actually a really important person. This is Moses' sister. You may not recognize her. I didn't. But uh, Miriam is the girl who, when Moses' mom puts Moses in a basket and pushes Moses down the river, um, this Egyptian princess finds baby Moses, and Miriam, Moses' sister, is right there, and she says, hey, I know a woman who can raise this baby for you if you want to, and she convinces the princess to keep, keep Moses and let her mom, the true mom of Moses, raise Moses for the princess. So uh, Miriam is a really important person in Moses' life, and so she dies. And uh, so verses 1 through 5. We see the Israelites grumbling. It says they rise up against Moses and Aaron, and rightly so. They left slavery to be free. Most of them, at least. There might have been some that have like, been born since leaving and have grown up because it's been 37 years. But they left, they left Egypt to be free. And freedom isn't going, it's not looking like what they expected it to look like. They say, listen up, God. This is what freedom is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like better figs. Better variety of grains. Better those, those golden pomegranates. Better full grapevines and crystal lakes. Now make it happen and you'll be happy too. But God's freedom, the freedom that God's moved them in, looks like no figs, no grapevines, no grains, no water, and no pomegranates. There we go. I'm always surprised by the pomegranates. I didn't realize that was like an ancient food. I thought that was like a more recent thing. Freedom was supposed to look like all the good parts of slavery just without the slavery. When God set them free, he didn't do it so they could struggle through their freedom. He set them free so that they could thrive in their freedom. And the same is true for you. When God sets you free, he doesn't set you free so you can struggle through the freedom. He sets you free so you could thrive in your freedom. So the Israelites were in this wasteland, this desert wasteland. It's called the Desert of Zin. And there minus a wasteland. So this is outside of Canaan, outside of uh, Judah, in a place called Kadesh. It's a real place. 
And uh, I was wondering, because the, the, the Israelites see it as this wasteland. They're like, no one could live here. And I was like, well, can't, did people live there? And so I did a little research. I was looking this up. And I was like, man, I wonder who lived in the desert? And then first I was like, well, the Egyptians like, live in the desert, right? That's kind of where, like, if you imagine the pyramids, the pyramids are all like in the desert. So the Egyptians were in the desert, but they have the Nile River, so that's cheating, doesn't really count as the desert. Then um, I came across this people group called the Bedouins. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Bedouins before, but they predate Noah, and Noah, <laughs> Moses. They predate Moses and the Israelites in this exact same desert, in the exact same location, 4,000 years before. It's crazy. So the, the Bedouins are a nomadic people. And it's really cool because the, the first time I heard of the Bedouins was actually when I was in college, uh, kind of a long time ago now. But uh, in between semesters, our school would take trips, do different missions trips. And one of the missions trips that my friends went on, uh, they went to go stay with the Bedouins in the Middle East. And I'm like, they're still around. Isn't that cool? So uh, it's really cool to see that the Bedouins are still around. But the Bedouins were able to survive and thrive in this area uh, before Moses and the Israelites were even there. It's just cool to know that other people could live there too. So I'm like, hey, maybe they can. Maybe the Israelites can survive in this, this desert. Maybe God brought them there for a purpose. It might just be the Israelites don't have the knowledge or the experience to recognize what God has provided around them the provision God's put around them. They, they're, they're looking for figs and grains and pomegranates, but they don't realize what the, the type of plant life and animal life they have around them in the desert. They're surrounded by everything they need to survive and thrive. They just can't see it. They obviously don't see the crystal lakes, right? They're like, oh man, uh, water was supposed to be here. We were supposed to have these crystal lakes in this land. And they don't realize they're surrounded by water, but the water's all around them. God surrounded them with his provision, but they just don't recognize it. It happens to us today as well. Freedom doesn't look like what we thought it would look like. For me, for the majority of my life, I've been bullied. Bullying. Uh, bullied by a lot of people. And so I was praying, I was like, God, save me from bullying. It's just been like, like since middle school, high school, college, I was always praying, like, God, would you save me from, from bullying? And I was expecting God to answer the prayer, but all of a sudden, like, we're all like, making me like super brave, like Captain Anti-Bully. And I was going to stand up to bullies everywhere. Whenever I'd see someone get bullied, I'd be like, not today, right? I was like, God, why am I not brave? I don't get it. Like, I want to be free from this. I know you want me to be free from this. So how come I'm not brave? And all of a sudden, one day I realized I was just doing something particularly nerdy. And, uh, and then I was like, oh man, you know what? Like, I'm doing this and I'm enjoying myself and I'm not thinking about what the people have bullied me in the past would be thinking about me doing this right now. And they had so much control over my life, like in my mind for so long, wherever I, whenever I would do anything, I would be thinking like, oh man, how am I going to defend this? How am I going to make this seem cool when they find me doing something that's clearly not cool? And, uh, and so I was free. I just didn't realize I was free because it looked different than I expected it to look. And God wants you to be free too. He surrounded you with everything you need to thrive. A lot of times we're expecting that crystal lake, but it's water in the rocks. 
So it could look like this for you. You're surrounded by people, like in this room, but you feel alone and you have no friends. You're surrounded by love and acceptance, but you hate your body. You own a Bible, but you feel spiritually malnourished and starved. God will put you in a place where you can thrive in freedom. And this is where I just want to take a minute. Slow down for a second. What provision has God placed in your life for you to thrive in freedom? So you should think about that. That's step one. Step two would be ask God to show you what the next step is. And with this on our mind, I have a tool for you to use. It's really helpful. My wife told, told me about it. She always has these awesome tools. And uh, uh, I'm just going to have everybody close their eyes right now just because it, it would help. Um, this is what you do like, when you actually do it. You close your eyes and you put your hand on your chest. And uh, what we do when we close our eyes and we put our hand on our chest, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to speak out what we feel. And these are like true, like let, let yourself feel these feelings. Whatever these feelings are, like those really intense feelings, it's totally okay. And you speak those feelings out. You say like, I'm feeling anxious, scared, cold. And you're letting go of those things. So you're saying what you feel. You put your hand on your heart. And then you uh, switch it up and you put your hand on your head. And this is when you say you would speak truth. It's what you actually believe. So I would say, for mine, I would say, like, God's my provider. He provides everything I need when I need it. And he is so good. Hand on the chest, hand on your heart says what you're feeling, what you, what you think, and your hand on your head is what you believe. This might help you if you're trying to think about what the provision is that God's put in your life. Maybe help clear your mind a little bit, make, make you think more clearly. And then what your next step is. All right, I want to take a look at the second part of our passage. This would be uh, verses 6 through 13. We see Moses and Aaron getting the staff from God's presence. The staff is really, really cool. There's a lot of history about this staff, and I confuse it a lot of times with Aaron's staff because Aaron has a really cool staff too. But this staff was given uh, to Moses um, when he was going to get his people free from Pharaoh. He threw the staff on the ground. It became a serpent, freaked him out, and then turned back into his staff. The staff is cool, all right? I'd like that staff. It'd be pretty awesome. And um, this staff not only turns into a serpent, it turns back, but it also parted the Red Sea. Aaron's staff does a whole bunch of really cool stuff too, but God has Moses take this staff from his presence and go out. And so when the people see the staff, they know something big's about to happen. They're like, yes, let's go. Something crazy's about to happen. And they're going to they're get excited. When Moses sees this staff, I'm thinking, you know, Moses sees this staff and he sees the 37 years. 
right? He sees this life he left behind and how this new life he started and all the struggle and uh, how this trip is only supposed to take two weeks, but they're 37 years in. And Moses sees the staff. And so we see Moses get mad. And I understand. It's like you have this. It's like you're reflecting on these 37 years, how hard they've been, all the struggle. But this staff also must be like a baseball bat because it breaks stone. We see that later. He swung it and it broke some stone open. Because a lot of times I feel like I read the verse and I expect Moses to be like tap, tap, like that with his staff, like an old man would, like burp, burp, like that. And uh, the water comes out. But He's probably swinging for the fences, right? This staff, I've never seen a stick break rock before, so it's a pretty impressive staff. One last thing to note before we get to our point. Moses loves blaming people and yelling at people, and he makes sure to, to fit this in in this second part. He's like, listen up, you rebels. But then after that, Moses uh, proclaims himself as the provider. He's like, must we bring you water out of this rock? Right, he's, he's, he's stopped listening to God at that point. He's, he's prepared to fulfill the people's needs all on his own. Remember the Bedouins that I talked about? Predated Moses in this area by 4,000 years. So the Bedouins had this trick to surviving in the desert. And that trick involved limestone, which was pretty prevalent in this area, which uh, limestone is made from coral, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but it's there. And the way Bedouins used to, um, used to get water in the desert is they would go up to limestone. They'd break the limestone because limestone is made of coral. It's, it's, like, it's like a sponge. It absorbs all the water in the area. So when you break open the limestone, water comes out. This was a well-known trick among the Bedouins well before Moses was in this part of the desert. And uh, remember, Moses was a prince in Egypt for quite a while. Egypt had two main building materials when building Egypt. They had sandstone and they had limestone. So Moses, and then Moses also was a shepherd in the desert after that, before God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. So did Moses use a Bedouin trick to get water out of the rock when God wanted a miracle? I don't know. Seems like it. But uh, he would have a lot of experience around limestone. He'd know what limestone looked like. And a lot of times I imagine limestone or just rocks in this story just looking like, like this, like this speaker. It's just like a little rock. And Moses hit it with a staff and water, like fire hydranted, like a broken fire hydrant, out of there or something. But it also, it could have looked like that white thing over there with the lights on it. It could have just been like a sheer cliff and uh, he broke the bottom of it and the water would obviously drain out the bottom. So when God wanted Moses to perform the miracle, he wanted Moses to speak the water out of the rocks. It would have been something no one's done before, right? The Bedouins, they break the limestone open and the water comes out. But Mo God wanted Moses to speak the water out. I think there was still a miracle there, though, either way, because remember, there's 600,000 people and then their livestock, and every single person drank, including the livestock. So I think the amount of water was miraculous, whether or not the, the method of getting the water out was miraculous. I have no idea how they, like, formed orderly lines and got everybody to drink, or if it was, like, this crazy geyser where, like, ah, just open up their mouth. I had to imagine that, because who, like, how big was this rock? I don't know. Just interesting to think about, worth, worth thinking about a little bit. 
All right, so the people and the livestock are provided for. God and Moses, uh, all of a sudden, they're not allowed into the promised land because of being disobedient to God. This is where I come in again every time I read the book of Numbers like this. Listen up, God. That's not fair. Why is Moses not allowed in the promised land? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, because I don't understand God's decisions and actions, I question his goodness. Because this one time of disobedience, Moses isn't allowed in the promised land, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, look at Moses' track record. All right, he left his life as a prince. He left his life as a shepherd. He's, uh, he listened to you to get uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. He's, he's dealt with these people for 37 years. And now, because of this one thing, he's not allowed in the promised land. If I was God, I would let Moses into the promised land because I'm, I'm like, I, he deserves it. He's earned his way there. Let's go. God is said to have perfect justice. How can I believe this is justice when I feel like it's impossible to defend? So, really quickly, like, what is justice? How do I get my understanding of justice? But how do I get my understanding of justice? It's super highly debated. Not going to get super into it. But what the definition of justice, straight from the dictionary, says the process or result of using laws to fairly judge and punish crime. And Christians believe that we get uh, our sense of justice innately from God at birth. Everyone has the same sense of justice. But what if you were born into a society where their sense of justice understanding has been twisted? What would you think was fair and what would you think would be unfair? There are these people that live in Indonesia uh, called the Sawi. I think I've heard them talked about here before, but they're a really interesting people group. So their key virtue out of everything is deceit. The, the better you can trick your enemy, the more glory you get. So the further you can go along with your enemy, making them think that you're going to help them, and then at the last second you trick them, the better it is. Like the long con is gold there. So uh, there were these missionaries called the Richardsons. They decided they were going to go to these people, learn the language, and then teach them the gospel. They get there, they spend a long time learning the language. It takes a long time, especially because you can't trust anybody. You don't know if anybody's trying to help you out because they're going to they're gonna deceive you later, they're going to betray you later. They finally learn the language. And, um, and they, teach, they teach these people the story of Jesus. And at the end of teaching them, they celebrated because Judas was the hero. They're like, woo, go Judas. And they're like, ah, how do we convince these people that Jesus is the hero? Because their sense of justice was so twisted, they thought that Judas was the hero because he deceived Jesus all the way to the end. And when I look at that, uh, I think it's funny because it's like, I think my sense of justice is so better developed than theirs. I look at them like, what a silly people, you know? Because think about the problems they would have as a society. They would never develop Every time they try to advance a little bit more, they're always undercutting each other and, uh, and deceiving each other. How do they operate as a, as a people group, as like a nation, as a people? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me because I think my sense of justice is so much better than theirs. So my dad had a friend who was an arbor uh, when I was a kid. And normally he'd have to pay to get rid of wood. My dad, being a good friend, is like, oh, just dump it in our yard. We love wood chips for our garden. Our, ki- our kids love to move them, right? It's a lie. Don't like moving them. So as a punishment, 
or as chores, I would have to move these mountains of wood chips and uh, just around the gardens and stuff. And they're everywhere. It was the worst, so much. And there was one, this one particular day, I got in trouble. I was eight. I don't know if I said that. And uh, so I went and got the shovel, and I was so mad that I had to move these wood chips. I threw the shovel. Wah! Sent it down the hill. Little did I know, my dad saw me do that, and so I got in double trouble. And uh, <laughs> I remember walking to the wood chips, like, this is so unfair. When I have kids, I'm never going to do this to my kids. Now I'm 15. I was out with my friends. We were probably at youth group, coming home from youth group, who knows. And, uh, and we were having a, a blast. We got lost because like, none of us knew where we were. And uh, only one, of my, one person had a cell phone. That was a person who was driving. It didn't have a camera. I think it didn't even have a color screen. And so it's not like we could use our phone to get home. And uh, I knew I was supposed to call my dad and, be, and let him know if I was going to be late. Uh, but I didn't want to like kill the vibe. Be like, hey guys, can I call my parents? Uh, so we were having a blast. I was just like, yeah, we're, like, we're lost. Yeah, finally get home. And my dad's waiting up for me. And I'm like, oh no. So I go inside and I get uh, grounded from hanging out with friends for a week because I, uh, I was super late and I was disobedient. I remember going to my room. This is so unfair. I'm never going to do this to my kids when I grow up. Then there's me 15 years later. All right, me and all my parenting friends, doing the same thing our parents did, right? It's, It's crazy how much my sense of justice and what's fair can change in 15 years. Now imagine how much it would change in 50 years, or if you live forever, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 5,000 years, how much would your sense of justice change in that time, your understanding of justice develop in that time, right? Because it, it wouldn't be defined by the social climate, the cultural climate, the past four years, the past 10 years. It would, you would have a fuller picture, more uh, developed picture of what justice really looks like, what justice truly is. And God is the biggest, oldest being ever. He exists outside of time. His understanding of justice is so huge and so advanced that compared to him, we're just the eight-year-old throwing the shovel because we don't understand because his parents aren't treating him the way that he would want to be treated, that he would treat himself. It's really hard because it takes time to process and understand when we look at God's actions. We might not ever understand God's justice in our lifetime. And that's really, really hard to accept. Because I want to know right now. I don't want to admit that, like, I'm never going to figure it out. I had these two girls come up to me at a camp that I was speaking at. Uh, They probably thought I was really wise because I was the one speaking there. So, like, we got to go to him with this problem. It was a mistake. They come up to me. They're both crying. And this... uh, they, they're both crying. They're sisters. And this family they babysat for has four kids. They're four really young kids. And the mom had just died of brain cancer. Brain cancer. And they're crying. And they're like, Russ, why would God do this? This is so unfair. And I'm like, I have no idea. I didn't have a good answer for them. I gave them a terrible answer. How is it fair that this woman got taken away? One of the hardest things I have to admit to myself and accept is that if I can't understand, then I'll have to trust someone who does. God does. Even if I can't defend it or figure it out, 
I can trust God. So I want you guys to take a moment with me, just like we did before. What do you see as being unjust? What's the situation uh, that you see? What's something you're having a hard time with? We all have stuff like this, like the, the mom of the four young kids who died. It's unfair. What are you having a hard time with? Even if I can't defend it or figure it out, I could trust him. So the common theme throughout all this throughout everything I've shared is that everyone wants God to do things their way. If God just did things my way, everything would be better. The Israelites' lives would be better. Moses' life would be better. He'd be in the promised land. My life would be better. That girl's parent, the the girl's uh, friend would be alive if it was my way. Even if I can't figure it out or defend it, I can trust God. I can trust that God is good. And you can trust him. Pray with me. God, you are so good. Even in times where it feels like we're in a desert, starving, dying of thirst, malnourished, God, you are the great provider. Would we see and have the eyes to see exactly what you've put around us so that we can survive and thrive? Whatever provision you've put around us, God, would we be able to see it we know you've already taken care of us. Help us to thrive in that freedom you've, you've provided. Would you remind us that there's a next step we could take, whatever that step is, whether it's like emailing us, emailing somebody or texting them. Would you give us the boldness to take that next step? And for those hard things that we're struggling with that we can't defend or we might not understand. Would we be able to trust you? The little things, the big things, God. Even when I can't understand, I can trust you. Would we go out today knowing that you go before us and with us and that you are for us and that you want us to be free? Thank you so much for your goodness and your name. Amen. I will see you guys at Cornrows. <laughs>